Good afternoon, and welcome to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Just as a reminder to make sure your cell phones are off. I'd like to uh, start with the acknowledgement statement. We acknowledge that uh, our event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people, the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And we pay respect to the past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. We commit to do our utmost to assist with efforts to mend and heal past and present injustices. My name is Jeffrey Kaufman, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator today. Uh, just a reminder as well, the talk um, uh, and the question and answer will be recorded and available on SACPAW's website uh, after the meeting. Shaw Spotlight will also record uh, today's presentation and use excerpts from the PowerPoint for their daily broadcasts. As you know, uh, lunch will be provided. Um, as I understand it, um, uh, prime rib, scalloped potatoes and roast vegetables um, are not on the menu for today. <laughs> I'm not certain what is, but you'll find out later. Uh, lunch is $14, uh, and if you just like a coffee, it's $2. Please make sure you've put your money in the bowl on the table, and one of the SACPAW uh, volunteers will collect it at 12.30. Uh, just a reminder as well, the outline and the format uh, for today is we'll have a 25 to 30 minute presentation, uh, lunch, question and answer, and then finish up around or at 1.30 p.m. Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce our guest speaker. If you are a person who loves politics and political analysis, you're in for a treat. If you're a person who does not like politics or political analysis, you're in for a treat. Uh, we have with us today Dr. Paul Ferry. Um, Paul is a... Uh, uh, on the right sheet here. Uh, Paul has a PhD in political science from the University of Calgary, focusing on voter behavior. He has taught politics courses at the University of Calgary since 2010 and ran the Globe and Mail election forecast in 2015. He's a senior research associate at the University of Calgary. Uh, Paul has the uh, gift and the ability to take what is complicated or what is nuanced in politics and make it absolutely accessible for the public. And it's that strength that makes him appreciated, especially on the venue Twitter. Those of you on Twitter, I would suggest you follow Paul because not only will you learn something, you'll usually snort your coffee in the morning. So without further ado, please give a sack Paul welcome to Dr. Paul Ferry. So no pressure to be uh, clear or anything. I'd like to thank you all so much for uh, skating your way in uh, this morning to the event. Uh, I, I thought about uh, strapping on my skates and I remembered I actually can't ice skate. It's a great shame of mine as a, as a Canadian. I once uh, tried ice skating at the Olympic Oval and then some teenagers walked by me and made fun of me. So it's probably, probably for the best. So um, as Jeff said, uh, my name is Paul Ferry. Uh, I, uh, I work at the University of Calgary. One of the, my favorite things that I do is teach these one-day courses in, um, in politics for the general public through continuing ed, and uh, always happy to talk about politics with uh, anyone, uh, anytime. Uh, so today we're going to take the um, optimistic question of did everybody lose the election? And, and I'm going to argue today that probably more or less everybody did in one way or another, including m maybe like our national mood where we feel more uh, divided than maybe we've ever, ever felt before, but I'm gonna maybe walk our, walk our way through the, the point that uh, things, I, either things are bad and they've always been bad, or things are actually pretty much the same as they've always been, 
uh, with respect to uh, our national divisions. So that's what we're gonna uh, talk about today. So the other thing I wanna talk about is probably the best explanation for um, this last election and how we're feeling now it was actually written in, in 1968. So I'm gonna be a big political science nerd and uh, walk us through a paper uh, from then and, and just see what, uh, what it said and how it applies to uh, today. So I know you don't have any choice in this matter, but I hope this sounds good as a plan to you. So what happened in the 2019 uh, election? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we were all uh, staying up late uh, that night watching the results, but uh, if you didn't, just as a reminder, the Liberals won 157 seats, the Conservatives 121 seats, but uh, you might have noticed as well that the Conservatives actually won about 200,000 uh, more votes uh, than the Liberals, which caused some, uh, some eyebrows to raise. The Bloc did a lot better than they had done it in the last few elections, uh, winning 32 seats on 8% of the vote. And the NDP, who actually won twice as many votes at 16%, uh, won fewer seats. And the Greens did their best ever in terms of seats at three uh, with, uh, with 7% uh, of the vote. But really, I, wa I wanna take us through, again, the rather dismal explanation of, of, of everybody really uh, lost. So in some ways, in, in a very practical way, like literally the Liberals did win the election. I mean, I, I'm not saying that nobody actually won, but they did win the most seats, but they did it without winning the most votes. Whereas the Conservatives obviously did the opposite, winning more votes, but fewer seats. Now, how did that happen? So obviously, literally, just people voted and we counted the votes and then the seats. But like, what, what shifts took place to get us to this relatively unusual situation? Now, I, I mean, this is not the question and answer portion for you, but when was the last time that happened? Again, 1979, uh, when uh, Joe Clark uh, won uh, more seats, but with fewer votes than, uh, than the, uh, the poorly known uh, Pierre Trudeau. Um, so how did this happen? So point number one is that the Conservatives did better, obviously, in terms of the number of votes than they did last time, but it was it, almost exclusively in areas that they already did well in. So there's sort of two little uh, bar graphs here. The numbers themselves don't matter, but on the left hand, we have the, the seats that didn't vote Conservative in 2015, so the what seats that voted Liberal or NDP or, or whomever. So in 2015, in non-conservative seats, they got 23.4%, the Conservatives did, and they, they, they surged all the way to 24.3% to in 2019. But in the seats where they already won them in, in, in 2015, they went from 51 to 56%. So like most of the gains that the Conservatives made uh, in, in, in October's election were actually in areas where they already did well. And like we'll know that um, the electoral system is just first past the post, super simple to explain. If you, if you win the most votes, you win the seat. So w picking up votes in areas that you've already won is, so is sort of relatively useless. Like it's nice, you get to say that, oh, I won the most votes in the election, but you don't actually pick up any more seats. So really what we see here is that the conservatives did better in areas where they were already uh, strong. We can see this if we look at it elsewhere. So this is, the, this is looking at the ridings by how, how dense the population is, not, not how stupid they are, but in fact, um, like how many people live per square kilometer. Um, so in, in, in the highest density seats, so the seats primarily in like even downtown Calgary, um, 
where I live, or, or, or downtown Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, these sorts of areas, the Conservatives actually lost votes. They went from 24% in 2015 to 23%, whereas in the, the ridings with the lowest population density, they actually picked up 9% of the vo votes. Again, again, it's just this story that a lot of the shifts that the Conservatives, uh, a lot of the votes that they picked up were actually just in areas where they uh, already won uh, already. Another one that, that, that people always enjoy uh, here in Alberta is if you split up the ridings by the percentage of people working in sort of like energy or natural resource extraction, you can see like in areas without natural resource extraction all the way on the right, the Conservatives went from 24 to 22%. But in areas with lots of natural resource extraction, they went from 44 to 56%. So again, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you a story, and this story is that the Conservatives really um, not just stuck to their base, but grew like in areas where they were already um, really strong. And you can see basically the opposite story true for the Liberals. So again, looking at population density, the Liberals basically held their vote in areas with high population density, only losing one percentage point. Whereas they, they went from 35 to 23, like really quite terrible, in, in the lowest quarter of, of ridings if you sort them by population density. Oh, a pointer. Oh, look at that. How does this work? Oh, opposite. Oh, there we go. Oh, look at that. So, yeah, so you can see here, this is exciting. I'm going to use this now. Um, so the lowest 84%, 84 seats for population density had, had a really big uh, drop uh, in, in 2019. Again, saying the Liberals lost a lot of votes. Like, it's really, really can't emphasize how many votes they lost. But it was, again, in areas that they weren't really doing well in anyway. So going from you know, 20% in the seat that they're not winning to 5%, it sort of doesn't, essentially doesn't matter. <coughs> so the Conservatives lost the number of seats, the Liberals lost uh, the popular vote, and the NDP did do better than expected in, in, in 2019 in a way. Like, if you watch the speech of the leader of the NDP, it seemed like very ebullient and happy because at the beginning of the campaign they were polling at like, seven or eight percent, and at the end of the campaign, they won like 15 or 16 percent. But, let's see if I can do this while also speaking into the microphone. Um, the NDP actually only won 21 seats that they won last time, and they actually lost more seats uh, than they won again. So they, like, they lost more than half of their seats. So five NDP seats went liberal, six NDP seats went conservative, 11 NDP seats went uh, to the block. So again, it might have felt like an enthusiastic comeback maybe from September, but it was really, really not a great night uh, either. Um, the Greens, the Greens, you think, okay, the Greens won three seats, a really surging from one seat to two seats in the by-election to three seats on election night. You can tell I get, election nights are my favorite nights, so this is like uh, uh, exciting for me. Um, but they won three seats, which sounded great. But if you're, if you're trying to build a national movement, you also want to pick up popular vote. So what, is it, what, what, is, what happened to the Greens here? I was pointing at myself, that was great. Um, they actually won more votes in 2008 than they won in 2019. So I mean, in some ways, it's a great success for the Green Party. Like, they concentrated their vote in specific writings. So they won Fredericton and two near Victoria. So like, strategy-wise, A plus, great job, guys. But in terms of like building national support throughout the country, they're actually not doing any better than they did uh, in, in 2008. 
Now, the, the block probably, if you're listening at home, this is just a dramatic sip of water. That's over now. Um, but the block probably did best of all of these places, of all of these parties. But as much as they picked up a lot of seats, A, they're lower than they were in the 90s in terms of both seat and popular vote. But also, separation in Quebec is only polling at about 25%. So like the whole uh, raison d'etre, uh, it's the best I can do in French, um, of the block is not really why people are voting for them anymore. It's more that it's sort of a, a safe, protest vote. So, I mean, if the bloc is thinking our only goal is to win seats, yeah, they did pretty well. But if the bloc's goal is to actually, you know, move separation of Quebec to, to make them leave Canada, it's not really, it's not really going uh, anywhere. So hopefully I've depressed all of the, the partisans in the room that, that your party also did uh, poorly. If you're Jody Wilson-Raybould, you know, congratulations, you won your, you won your seat in Vancouver. So maybe Alberta lost. So this is more about the, the picture here. So this is the percentage of uh, federal government caucus MPs from Alberta. And you can see, like, if you like a roller coaster, this graph's for you. So 1968, 3%, oh, 0%. Oh, yeah, 19%. Oh, yeah, 15%. And 2111123% all the way down to, to zero. So maybe, maybe if, if another party lost, like the feeling in Alberta is certainly like, that were left out of the federal government. There were lots of uh, news stories uh, yesterday, I guess, about how, oh, in, in surprise news, no, M no MPs from Alberta or Saskatchewan were appointed to the cabinet. I mean, not, not, a, not, a, huge, not a huge surprise. Um, so we, we've had all this talk then of, 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 of Wexit. Um, and, and I mean, as an aside, I, f I find it personally hilarious that like, you would associate yourself with with the Brexit movement on purpose, like you think, oh, this is a, a good brand for us. It's, it's, it's the Wytenic, it's our new ship here. It's like, you know, you know pick, a better, pick a better brand. Um, but if we looked at the poll from Abacus, um, and actually, if, if, you know, if you know Lisa uh, Lambert here and I, so, so we went to school with uh, Dave Cloto, who's the CEO uh, of Abacus. And he still looks about 12 years old, which is, uh, which is nice. Um, but if you look here, Green means you want to stay in Canada. Red means you want to you want to leave. You want Alberta to leave. So where is Alberta separation then um, popular? So overall, 25% of people in this poll said they wanted Alberta to separate, but it's actually relatively more or less consistent in all groups. If you look at men and women, men slightly more than women, but it's not that important of a difference. By age group, it's unpopular with 18 to 29 year olds. 30 to 44-year-olds, most unpopular with the 60-plus crowd. Um, and if anybody likes it a little bit more, it's the 45 to 59-year-olds. I should ask them what's up with that. Um, and then also in terms of vote, like I'm very curious to meet the 9 and 11% of liberal and new Democratic voters who want to leave uh, Canada. But I mean, conservatives, even amongst conservative voters who should be the most dissatisfied, it's just 37% of voters there. So I mean, as much as it's become on the agenda here, it's still not a hugely, a hugely popular option, at least yet. I mean, history is no specific predictor of what's gonna happen in the future, but at least right now, uh, the feeling is more of a feeling of division than a specific call for um, separation. Another interesting point from the, um, from the polls is that, like the usual 
left-right politics that we're maybe more used to uh, in Canada and lots of countries is actually fading away as an important factor uh, for vote choice. So if you think of like the traditional left-right divide, it's fights over more or less government intervention, social conservatism versus social progressivism, stronger or, social, uh, stronger or weaker social safety nets, do we want to take action together or as individuals? It's, it's sort of the classic divide that we've seen a lot of times, but it's actually less predictive now of how people vote, and less, like, it's less explanatory. So an, uh, an interesting one that's coming up around the world, and also I'm, I'm gonna show you in a second, is rising in Canada, is, is, is more of a, what they call now an open versus ordered worldview. So instead of being about how much government you want in your life, how much you believe that the state can solve social problems, now it's just about sort of your worldview about whether you see an open world or an ordered world. Sometimes they call it an open and closed system as well. So who are the opens? So the opens are socially liberal, they're pro-free trade, they like immigration, they like trade deals. Um, the more ordered people are more culturally conservatism, conservative, so they're, they're more into like nationalism and national identity. They, 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 they don't like immigration as much, not even always out of like um, a xenophobia, but even out of economic concerns sometimes. And there's uh, less uh, favorable views of, uh, of, of, of anything to do with like open borders. So if you think that sounds familiar, I mean, it's the story of, of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is this confusing, like he's confusing in lots of ways, let's be honest, but he's a confusing mess of like, like you think he sounds like a conservative sometimes, but it's really more about this sort of ordered or closed world view. Like what, what, is his, what are his big things? It's about like US national identity. It's about um, not liking Mexico. It's about um, building a wall. It's about keeping people out. It's about even being, like, being against NAFTA. It's, it's sort of that ordered world view. Same story, exact same story in Britain with Brexit. So what's Brexit about? Is it about conservatism in any classical sense? Not really, it's really about sort of a more closed worldview, separating uh, the UK from Europe. It's about um, European mi uh, migration between countries. It's more about this sort of rise of an ordered uh, worldview. And there was a really interesting poll from Ecos, one of the polling firms uh, that was done just after the election. So the way, the way that they asked about open and closed, so if you, if you really like surveys, like you never wanna ask someone, are you open or closed with regard to your world, world view? It's not gonna be a very effective question. So what they did was they asked four questions about what's the most important thing when you're raising children? Is it, do you want them to be creative or obedient? Do you want them to respect or question authority? Do you want them to be driven by evidence or by morality? And do you want them to have and you ask them, like, do you want them to have an open or, or ordered worldview? And you just do that to kind of get a sense of how the respondent to the poll is on this order, ordered versus open kind of axis. So if you look at US and uh, UK polling, th this ordered open access is really, uh, or ordered open access is really um, more explanatory of how people vote. And it's actually really explanatory in Canada as well. I'll walk you through this so it's not too, uh, uh, too confusing. So at the bottom, here are the people who are more open. So again, the people who are more in favor of immigration, who are more socially liberal. Up here at the top are the people who are more ordered. So again, the people who are more against immigration, 
and who are um, um, sort of more culturally conservative, more nationalistic. And you can see here there's a huge difference as you go up from more open to more ordered. So amongst the most open voters, the liberals want a huge uh, plurality of the votes. They won 43%. The conservatives actually even came in third with 17%, and the NDP would have uh, come in second here uh, among the more open voters. Whereas the more ordered voters, the conservatives win a huge majority. So amongst like, the most open voters, about seven in 10 of this more ordered voter community is actually much more likely to be conservative. And this is actually more predictive, if you will, of, of vote choice than asking people just about what's your opinion about government or do you think we should have more or less spending on healthcare. Asking this question is actually better at explaining what happened. So in some ways, like what else lost then was our traditional understanding of what divides us politically. Is it left, right? Not so much anymore. It's, it's this open and ordered um, connection. So if we think, if you want to summarize um, what happened in 2019, basically all the parties lost. And, and even when the parties did well, they actually just only did better in areas where they were already strong and were moving towards this sort of more open ordered division, which makes us feel more uh, divided than ever. But is it, is it true? Like, are, are, are we actually more divided than we've uh, ever been? So let's cast our mind back now for a moment, I don't know, close your eyes or at least metaphorically close your eyes and imagine we're in March 1968. So what do we got? We got a liberal minority government. We got Trudeau as prime minister. We got young people complaining about old people and old people complaining about young people. <laughs> it's very different from now, so it's hard to imagine. But also the, the, the first issue of the Canadian Journal of Political Science uh, was released, everybody's favorite publication, I'm sure you get it uh, once a quarter. Um, and, and I wanna look at like a really classic article and sort of walk you through a little bit of the overview and say like that this really explains a lot of what we're feeling uh, as a community uh, right now. So the article, you, should, you can actually access it for free online. It's a little bit um, of, a, of a maze to get to it. But it's by Alan Cairns, like a really uh, famous and classic political scientist. He wrote an article called The Electoral System and the Party System in Canada, 1921 to 1965. And, and I think, okay, well, that sounds, that sounds like it might not be super relevant to today, but, but it really helps us explain, I think, a, at least a little bit of what's happening right now. So the traditional view that this paper um, presents and thinks about is of how we think about the two things, the electoral system, so the rules how we, about how we count the votes and assign the seats, and also what the role of political parties are uh, in society. So, so people claim, one, that the electoral system helps stabilize things. So if you remember in the last parliament, the, the Trudeau famously claimed, uh, we're gonna, it's been the last election under first past the post and so on. Um, when they rejected do, changing from first past the post, they said, oh, it's gonna introduce too much instability, there'll be more minority governments, and so on. And the other one is that political parties are these big nationalizing agents. So the, like, why do we join a party? It's to help build the country, make it better, and the parties will have the nation's best interests at heart. Whether or not you're a li like a liberal or a conservative or a Democrat, you'll have different ways of improving the country, but, um, but their main purpose is to sort of uh, bring us all together. And like, we have this feeling that if this isn't true, it's disappointing because there was a time in the past where this was true and it's no longer true. But what if that itself uh, is not true? Like what if, um, what if it's never really been this way? 
So one claim that we see is first past the post has not created, well, creates stable majority governments. So in, in his paper, he showed lots of examples of how there have been lots of minority governments in Canada's past. Uh, if we think even just of the time period um, uh, where the paper was written, almost 40% of, of elections ended up in minority or close to minority situations. So we don't actually have a stable country as a result of our uh, electoral system. And I mean, even looking at recent elections, let's see if we can do this from memory, 2004, minority government. 2006, minority government. 2008, minority government. 2011 and 15, majority government, but then 2019, minority government. So this sort of story that we tell ourselves about the electoral system helping create stability, absolutely not true. And like, if we feel more divided because we have a minority government, we actually quite often have a minority government. It's not the most common result, sure, but, it, but it's really, really like very frequent. If, if you had like a 40% chance of, of um, being hit by a car as you cross the road, you'd probably think that's not, not a very good uh, sort of outlook. Another, another point is that uh, um, first past the post is good because it makes the bigger parties more important in parliament and keeps the smaller parties out but it doesn't actually do that in a regular way. So what it does is it does help out the bigger parties generally. Like the Liberals got 33% of the vote, 46% of the seats. The Conservatives were pretty even, 34% of the vote and 36% of the seats. The Bloc Québécois were also even, like they're a small, smaller party, 8% of the vote and 9% of the seats. Whereas the NDP got 16% of the vote, only 7% of the seats. And the Greens got 7% of the vote, and 1% of the seats. So wh which smaller parties is it punishing? It's actually making things worse for national unity, you might argue, because it helps uh, regional parties like the Bloc Québécois uh, translate their votes into a lot of seats, but it actually punishes more national-looking parties like the NDP or the Greens, who run everywhere and do pretty well everywhere, but because they don't do the best in any one area, it actually punishes parties that try to nationalize uh, the, the country's view. Another point that we see um, about first past the post is it actually makes the divisions look a lot worse than they are. So here's, here's the seat share uh, from Alberta in, uh, in 2019. Conservatives, 97% of the seats. NDP and like, just, just Edmonton, Strathcona really, 3% uh, of the seats. And you're like, oh, where's the liberals? Then maybe they're hiding behind the back, I'm not sure. Um, but they're nowhere to be seen. So it really looks like Alberta is presenting this picture to the country that it's 100%, 97% conservative, when, like in reality, uh, we know that that's not the case. Like, sure, the conservatives got 69% uh, of the vote here, but lots of other parties got some other votes. So it sort of pr projects this sort of fictional um, view of what really happened. So it makes things look a lot more divided uh, than they actually are. Fun fact that I found out a couple weeks ago, just looking at some things, because I mean, I'm sure we all look at election results for, for fun. Um, I'm just gonna assume I'm not, not alone there. Uh, please, I don't wanna be alone. Um, 2019, you say 69%, 69% of voters voted conservative. That sends a strong message to Ottawa that people are really angry. And sure, compared to 2015, 59% of people voted conservative in Alberta. But 2011, it was 67, 2008, it was 65. Not a lot different, but in 2000, I think, oh, I remember those angry days of the year 2000, um, and Y2K was stressful, but that was about all. 
Um, but the Canadian Lions got 59%. The, the old Conservatives under Joe Clark got 13.5%. It was 72% of voters voted for the parties that eventually became the Conservatives. So essentially the point here is that like, first past the post is really emphasizing um, how divided and different Alberta is. Whereas actually it's not super different from how, how it has been in the last 20 years, at least in terms of, uh, at least in terms of, of vote choice. So again, this paper I think is important to think about just because it challenges this notion that parties are, uh, um, are traditionally nationalizing agencies. Bonus points over lunch, I want you to think about this point. Uh, it's a quote from the paper. It says, uh, parties are imagined to restrain fissiparous tendencies. Five bucks of fictional money to, the, to the, whoever defines that without looking at Google. Um, but really, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, parties don't do this. Instead, what they do uh, what the electoral system does is it rewards smaller regional parties that divide us more and uh, punishes the larger, uh, the larger national ones. So let's summarize then what, uh, what, what I've, I've talked about in the last somehow 25 minutes. Um, first, no party should be super happy with how 2019 went. Like the, the liberals stayed in power, so they'll be like relieved, I guess, but, but they didn't win a majority again. It's going to be a a struggle to govern uh, for too long. And parties aren't really reaching out to new voters. They're at least not successfully doing this. That the conservatives did better in areas where they were already doing well. The liberals did well in areas where they were already doing well. So there's gotta be some sort of uh, change there perhaps. And we might seem more divided than ever. There's a lot more media coverage of, uh, of these Wexit rallies. But, but are we more divided in this way? You know, not according to evidence. Um, but also a really important point is that the electoral system, this first-past-the-post system that we have, um, does make things look a lot worse than they actually are. And I mean, it might then cause us to have more divided emotions than we have had before, but it's not like things are definitely worse uh, than they were uh, in the past. So, so I'll leave you with some questions to think about uh, either over lunch or if you're, if you're listening at home. Hello, hello people at home. How are you doing? Um, one, uh, like what do you think best explains this election result? Two, should parties be these nationalizing agencies? Is it their mission to, to bring us together? Um, can we do anything to encourage them to do that? Um, what can parties do, especially the liberals and conservatives, to reach out from beyond their base? Are we actually moving from a left-right politics to one of open and closed? Also, over lunch, you can talk about like how you're doing, are you enjoying the weather, uh, and all of that. So, so with that, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll apparently get to eat first. So I'll do that, and then uh, I'll see you back in half an hour.